he was done. He had given everything he had to his church. He had served for decades. He built an incredible men's ministry. He had been the driving force behind a lot of what the church was doing. And yet during a transition within the church life, he ended up getting hurt. And he was hurt and wounded badly by his own congregation, by his own community. Taylor left. Not only did he leave, but he wouldn't talk to anybody. He wouldn't talk to anybody and wasn't coming back. People figured he'd probably come back eventually, but he didn't. He never did. A lot of folks have given up on church. They may enter a church with high ideals, but then they start seeing the idiosyncrasies, the inconsistencies, the sins, the fact that this is an organization where your first vow of membership is that you're a sinner. And they start to see that not just in abstraction, but in personal ways. They end up getting, getting hurt, and, uh, and they become disenchanted and give up. And in one level, humanly speaking, it's understandable, and yet Jesus casts a vision that is something so much more beautiful, something so much better, that it's worth the difficulty pain, the forgiving people, and the giving grace. When Jesus comes crashing into your life, he sets before us things that are worthy of our devotion, worthy of our commitment. And we have a snapshot of what that looked like among those earliest Christians in Jerusalem after Christ uh, had, 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 had risen uh, and ascended into heaven. And, and, and there's a, at Pentecost, there are Jews from all over the world who have come and and Peter preaches to them. And then Luke here gives us, who's the author of the book of Acts, gives us a picture of what it looked like. What were the devotions of those first Jesus followers? This is Acts chapter 2. I'm beginning in verse 38. This is the word of God. Peter replied, Repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. And then we have the description. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, that's the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together, and they had everything in common selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. And every day they continued to meet in the temple courts together. They broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Here we see earliest followers of Jesus who, like those magi at his birth, had come together to worship him. And we have a picture of Jesus' church, Jesus' family, the family of God, 
after they followed Jesus and were baptized. And what do we see here? We see one big thing. We see a radical devotion to the church as family together. This is something sacred. It's a devotion. They devoted themselves to the fellowship. Did you notice their core commitments? The apostles' teaching, that's scripture. Prayer, the Lord's Supper, and the fellowship. That being together. As the author of Hebrews had said, do not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but instead encourage one another by gathering together. What is the fellowship to which they were devoted? The, the Greek term koinonia is best described with kind of a combination of English words. On the one hand, it's community, but it, it has a more highly committed value to it than community. It's, it's a fellowship or a, a communion. It, it speaks of a joint participation, a, a sharing of life together, a family intimacy, a, a committed oneness. Koinonia or fellowship means mutually belonging to one another, being each other's mutual possession. It happens, appears 19 times in the New Testament, and they, they were devoted to this koinonia, to this belonging to one another, to sharing life together, to participating in this mystical body of Jesus he calls his church, which is the family of God, facing a hostile world. Put yourself in those first believers' experience in the face of a hostile world in which people were kicked out of synagogues, they were expelled from their families. They lost their careers because they followed Jesus. And if you're Jewish, that was considered a heresy. And if you're a Gentile, that was considered worse. That was considered treason. But in a world in which they were under attack from every direction, these committed followers of Jesus were devoted to one another, devoted to the fellowship. Do not give up the meeting together. St. Augustine said, around the year 400, that you can't have the church, or you can't have God as your father without likewise having the church as your mother. Because when Jesus saves us, he puts us into a body of believers to whom we belong and who belong to us to be family together. Uh, consider the way Jesus redefined family for his followers. You've heard this from me before, but when, when Jesus was preaching and, and his mother and brothers showed up at the gate, everybody's like, oh, Jesus, Jesus. Your, your mom is, is here to see you. And they expected him to just snap, jump every, stop everything, and go out to take care of his, his mother and brothers. Because in antiquity, in a tribal culture, you had your highest loyalty to your family. And that included aunts and uncles and cousins and nephews and, and, and the, the whole village, which is your extended family. And, and so Jesus did something that was considered extremely rude. When he didn't, like, snap together and go stop teaching and go talk to his mom and, 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 and brothers. He said, who is my father and mother's brothers but you who do the will of my father in heaven? In that he's saying that the core unit of the kingdom of God is not the biological family or even the extended family or tribe. It is the church, the family of God in whom we have a new identity and a new belonging with, with mutual duties and obligations because Jesus says we're his family, and that means he's devoted to us, and we're devoted to him, and we're therefore devoted to one another as family in that ancient sense. Family are those who will defend you when you're under attack wrongly. 
they will sell everything they have to purchase you out of slavery. Family were those who would defend you publicly and rebuke you privately. They were those who you couldn't pretend to be something uh, that you weren't because they'd see right through it because they knew you since you were a baby. Uh, family had an incredible meaning. You're, you're members of the same tribe together in Jesus. Our tribe is Jesus. What does that mean? It means siblings, brothers, sisters, adopted family. All of us united to him become kin, and we have a kinfolk bond between us. It means not only the duties and obligations of family, but also the intimacy of family within the church, within the body of Jesus. That means a closeness. Did you notice they were together, and then they were in the temple courts worshiping together, and then they were breaking bread in their homes together, 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 devoted to the fellowship. Brother is someone who knows what you smell like in the morning. A brother is someone who knows what you eat for breakfast. A brother is someone who knows what you look like at the end of the day. A brother is someone you don't have to get dressed up for. A brother is someone who knows what you're facing with your health, with your career. A brother knows your insecurities. A brother can call you on the carpet when you're wrong. A brother will defend you publicly when you're wronged. A brother will let you borrow his car. A brother is someone you can go off and do something adventurous with. A brother is someone you can go to battle together with. A brother will carry you to your grave literally as you face your final calling in this life. That is the holy bond of kinship. And that, Jesus says, is his vision for the church. Not an institution, but a family of people who are close, who are together, who are together, who are together, and who are devoted with a religious devotion to one another. Church devoted to the family of God together. It means making sure everyone has community with a level of depth. And it also means... They have community with a level of fixity, which is increasingly difficult in Western civilization because we move around a lot. We move around for jobs. We move around for family. Um, and, and that puts strain on family life because you're always saying hello to somebody new and goodbye to somebody that you're going to miss. But that's the cost of doing family together is including everyone, whether they're here for a short season or whether they're lifers. Uh, you know, uh, we do it for family. The gospel creates this kind of family. Uh, with a family at its healthiest, every member of the family is free to be themselves. No one has to pretend to be somebody they're not. They'd see through it anyway. There's a freedom to be honest about our weaknesses in a healthy family and yet still be accepted. Uh, in a healthy family, sins are forgiven. Uh, if that sounds like the gospel, then you're beginning to understand how interconnected the gospel of Jesus Christ and the church of Jesus Christ are because it's the one that gives birth to the other and sets its gospel culture as family together. What does it look like for a church to function as a family for all people who follow Jesus? It means making sure people are known. Um, doesn't mean everything about you needs to be known to everyone. There's still, you know, some <laughs> basic, you know, privacy that we all have on some level. But it, it means letting yourself be known so that what you project outside and what you are inside are aligning increasingly so that you can then, so it's the real you that can then receive the grace. Because if you wear a mask, then the mask is going to receive all the love and grace and not you. And you'll be just as empty as you were before. But to be known and loved 
known in our weakness and supported in our weakness so that we can become strong is the essence of what the church is here to do. Uh, you know, somebody notices if a family member doesn't show up for Christmas meal. Um, a family member knows when you're going to be out of town. They know when your plane might be landing. They know to check in on your pets. They know to call if you haven't been around. It means having refrigerator rights in someone's home. That meaning that's the true test of intimacy is do you have to ask their permission to open the refrigerator door and get something out? Uh, family has refrigerator rights. Imagine a church where, you know, when somebody's basement floods, people show up with pumps and shop vacs and squeegees prepared to get wet and dirty and sore and cold because healthy families show up when there's a need. Imagine a church where when a pandemic hits, people who still have jobs hand over their stimulus checks so that deacons can get money to the family members who really need it most. A church where there's intimacy, where someone knows and understands why maybe you don't want to come to church on Mother's Day and isn't going to judge you for that. Where someone remembers why the holidays might be hard for you this year. Where we can reminisce about those that we've lost, people that we've loved, people we remember who have now been promoted to glory, where we can help each other raise our kids by being there, even if that just means chasing a two-year-old out the front doors before they hit traffic at Stinker. Uh, you know, a church where no one needs to hide their struggles in their marriage or their struggles with mental health or their struggle with sin. A church family that goes after the strays because we want to be together. We don't want anybody to give up the meeting together, but rather we want to encourage them. A church that that sees the church not as a program or product that we judge, but, but sees it as a family, my family, that I'm committed to, that I would take a bullet for because they're my family. Jesus says they're my family. A church where God sets the lonely in families. I see so much of this already in you, and yet I want us to lean into it all the more deeply in redefining the church as our family together, Jesus bound himself to honor us with the mutual obligation of oldest brother. That means when we stray, he's committed to going after us. And when we're under threat, he's committed to coming to our defense. And when we have been sold into slavery to sin, he is the one who's willing to pay the price, however high it is, to get us out of there. He models for it because he does it himself for us obligating himself to be there for us when we need him with all the duties and obligations of the head of the family, the oldest son, the elder brother. But he's also defined the church not as the nuclear family, uh, 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 in the found, but, but as the foundational thing in this new age, this new era in which we live in Jesus. And it means we have an obligation to make sure that every one of us has a seat at a dinner table somewhere, sometime, because God sets the lonely in families. They were devoted to the church as the family together. It was a sacred devotion. And notice the, that triple repetition. They were together in verse 44. They were in temple courts together in verse 46. In verse 46 later, they broke bread in their homes together. So that means they were, they were together, and they were worshiping together, and they were doing meals and community together. Together, 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 a family together. Um, it's a weird paradigm because people in the United States have been trained that almost all relationships are um, commodity-based relationships. 
where you have um, a vendor and a customer. And so you have somebody, you've heard this before, somebody who changes the oil in your car. And you go to them to change the oil in your car because they're offering you a product that you want at a price that you're willing to pay. You have someone else that you go buy groceries from because they're offering you a product that you want at a price that you're willing to pay. And uh, you, know, you have all of these vendor relationships uh, that are basically commodity-based relationships. And so then you, know, you get a, a girlfriend or a boyfriend, and as long as they're giving you a product you want at a price you're willing to pay, you stay with them. And then, but if any of these vendors is now offering you a product that you don't want or has raised the price that you're no longer willing to pay, then the relationship ends because it's just a commodity. It's not a commitment. And then very often Americans look at marriages as something where as long as this is a product that I want at a price I'm willing to pay, I'm in the marriage. But if the product changes or if I'm no longer willing to pay that price, then I get an upgrade to a different relationship with somebody else. You know, we think as Americans, we're a consumer society and all of our relationships become consumer-driven relationships except, except parenting. And, and, and Jesus is giving us a completely different paradigm. He explodes that paradigm and says, don't you dare do that to my church. This is my body. This is my family. This is not a program for you to judge. This is not a vendor that you're willing to pay the price because you like the product. This is my family. These are my kids. Your sisters, your brothers, I want you devoted to one another because you're my family. A family together. It's a different paradigm. They had a radical devotion to doing church as family together. So what does devotion mean? It's the language of worship. Devotion is a serious word because the Bible tells us not to worship anybody but God alone. You remember when, when the apostle John goes to heaven in the book of Revelation, the apocalypse, and he, he sees an angel and he freaks out and he gets down on his face to, 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 in devotion to it. And he says, don't do it. I'm a creature too. And yet when it comes time to commitment to the body of Jesus, he does use this language of devotion. They devoted themselves to the fellowship. Uh, you know, if you were to join a Forest Park Owl Watchers Club and you get your binoculars together and your, and your longer things, telescopes, and you go and you look for the, the horned owl and its babies and over by, you know, you're kind of over by, uh, by the boathouse, you're checking it out, and you're all there together and you're observing different aspects of its, of its, of its wings and its, its head and, and how it does that crazy and and you know you're you're making sure you know exactly which subspecies this is and you're counting the young and and then somebody taps you on the shoulder and says oh you know excuse me that guy you're dating he's no good for you and you need to you need to dump him and you're like excuse me this is the forest park owl watchers club and i'm here to watch owls and that's not the church the church write this down the church is not the Forest Park Owl Watchers Club. Your family, you're invested in each other's lives. You need people invested into your life uh, who care about you enough to, 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 to love you with truth and love. Uh, you know what devotion is like. Uh, when, a, when a young man gets his first car and he, he takes it out in the, the driveway and he 
suds it up and washes it, and then he, he dries it all, and he, he washes the wheels, and he's washing the undercarriage for some reason, and, and he's, he's polishing the tailpipe, and, and he waxes it, and then he washes it again and waxes it again, and he puts that, that slimy stuff all over the vinyl inside to make it look shiny and clean, and he, he puts the Rain-X on the windshield, and, and he puts all of his time into that first car, and he puts all of his money into that car because he is devoted to that car. He loves that car, and he's committed until this girl shows up. And then he starts spending all of his time with, with her, and he starts spending all of his money on her, and he becomes devoted to her. We know what devotion is. It's when you have a, a commitment to somebody that you're, you just want to be with them all the time. We should be aware of the temptation, however, to use our ideals of biblical community to attack the actual community of the church. It's a temptation that Christians have always felt. Um, you know, your fellow Christians are all in process. They have all taken, they have all promised to be sinners in the sight of God, justly deserving his wrath without hope, save in his sovereign mercy. And you, you can't blame them for fulfilling that vow. Uh, you know, I've heard, you know, seminary students through the years who talk about their dream church. And it would be 50 people meeting in a coffee shop on a Sunday night and half of them aren't Christians yet, and there'd be four or five pastors, so you could do it all together in community. And, and I just kind of chuckle every time because it's a pipe dream because if you only have 25 Christians, then you've probably only got 12 incomes, and even if they're all tithing faithfully, you're not going to have one staff, much less four or five. But, you know, it's a dream of a community, and those are always dangerous. They're always dangerous. Dietrich Bonhoeffer cautioned us in his book, Life Together, the person who loves their dream of community will destroy the community, but the person who loves those around them will create community. He continues, those who love their dream of a Christian community more than they love the Christian community itself become destroyers of that Christian community, even though their physical or their personal intentions may be ever so honest, earnest, and sacrificial. God hates this wishful dreaming, he says, because it makes the dreamer proud and pretentious. And those who dream of this idolized community demand that it be fulfilled by God, by others, and by themselves. In other words, it's like in a marriage where the biggest danger to many marriages is the dream of the marriage you thought you were going to have. And you use that dream of the marriage that you wanted as a club to beat your actual spouse and your actual marriage with the bludgeon it. And, and you can have a dream of a community, of a church. Oh, so awesome if it was this. And then you spend all that time wielding that against the actual church made up of broken sinners who have mental illnesses and addictions and problems and bad marriages and difficulty. And, and, and you destroy the real church that Jesus has given you because you're dreaming of something else. We see a radical devotion to this new family together as the church, as it actually is, not the church we wish was there, I've been around this place 20, almost 29 years now, and I can say that those who have found and developed and invested in long-term gospel community where they are actually known in reality and not just wearing a mask and not just showing up on Sunday mornings but actually getting involved in ministry and in people's lives, those who go deep grow in Christ, and God blesses them tremendously. They may suffer tremendously. Jesus promises all of us get that. But you see them so alive to God. While those who try it for six months and then drift, 
are going to do that in another church and another church and another church, and they will never grow because they will never learn how to live in biblical community together as a family to which they are devoted radically. But it's hard because that means letting people see the real you. That means getting up when you'd rather sleep. That means going over to somebody's house or fixing somebody a meal or, or working with children in a nursery when you'd rather just you know watch online. So how is it possible? It's possible because this is precisely the church that Jesus died to create. It's all about the gospel for sinners like us. Here, Peter proclaims the forgiveness of your sins, a promise that's for you and for your children, a new community where it's a safe place to be a sinner and to experience that forgiveness of sins, a safe place to struggle and be honest, a place where it's not a good guy up front telling other good people how to become better people. It's a bunch of sinners coming to Jesus, laying our failures at his feet and receiving his forgiveness and investing in one another as family members to whom we feel an obligation of love and who in turn feel that same obligation toward us. Loved by a savior who knows how broken and damaged we are. A friend of mine from seminary told a story about, true story, about a nursery worker who showed up in his, his church. Uh, her name was Janet, and she was dropping her two boys off in the nursery. And he explains after the service, while Janet was waiting in the nursery line to ret retrieve her boys, uh, one of the nursery workers quietly approached her and tapped her on the shoulder and said, there were some issues this morning with your two boys. Both of them picked fights with other kids and they also broke some toys that belonged to the church. And Janet scolded her boys right then and there, and they, she screamed in a loud voice a four-letter word that I can't say in the pulpit without it being really uncomfortable. She was deeply ashamed. She felt like a failure. She got her boys, and she skulked out of the building, and no one thought they would ever see her again. But that unnamed nursery volunteer called the church that week to see if Janet had left an address, and she had, and so she wrote her a little note and sent it off, and it read something like this. Dear Janet, I'm so glad that you and your boys visited our church. Oh, and about the little exchange when you picked them up from the nursery, let's just say that I found it so refreshing that you would feel freedom to speak with an honest vocabulary like that in church. I'm really drawn to honesty, and you are clearly an honest person. And I hope we can become good friends. Love and signed her name, nursery worker. The nursery worker and Janet did in fact become friends. And Janet did come back the next Sunday. And the Sunday after that. And the Sunday after that. And eventually Janet became the nursery director for that same church. Uh, later on, they would realize that when she had first come that first Sunday, she was dealing with a, a years-long heroin addiction. Um, and she's just looking for life and community and help. When you see community like that, then you see the church Jesus died to create. Jesus creates his church. We read the Lord added to their number. They weren't adding to their number. The Lord did it because God creates his church. God grows his church. God builds his church. Uh, Jesus unleashes his gospel, and those of us who have never had interest in him suddenly find ourselves falling in love with God. Oh, it happened to me. It could happen to you. It could happen to anyone. And that's because Jesus saves. That's the cross. That judgment day has moved from the future to the past, and Jesus has paid the penalty completely. 
I uh, have shared before the story of a, a building collapse in China where rescuer workers, it was from very heavy rains with heavy mudslides and bad construction. And rescue workers had been laboring for over 12 hours at the site of four collapsed buildings, residential apartment buildings. And at that point, they had already transitioned, deciding that there would be no more survivors. The cement floors had collapsed like, like pancakes, and so no one could survive. And so they transitioned into an effort just to locate the bodies. And, and they found another victim, uh, Wu Ning Chi, was found buried deep in a massive pile of crumbled cement where the buildings, which were overcrowded and, and rain-laden, had once stood. But as they worked to recover Wu's body from the rubble, they discovered something they did not expect. Uh, the man had positioned his body in just such a position as to take all of the weight of the collapse onto himself, and he had carved out a space beneath him. And as they dug further, they found wrapped tightly in the arms of her deceased father, his three-year-old daughter, still grasped in his arms, and she was breathing, and she was alive, and her father had let all the weight of the collapse crush him to death in order to carve out a space of life for his baby girl. He was 26 years old. The little girl sustained only minor injuries. And one worker told reporters the child was able to survive entirely thanks to the fact that her dad used his own flesh and blood to prop up a life-saving space for his daughter. If you know Jesus, that should sound familiar to you because that's what Jesus did on the cross. He took his own flesh and blood to carve out a life-giving space in which you could be rescued because he loves you and he wants to form us into a sacred family, a devoted family, a devoted koinonia, a devoted fellowship because Jesus is devoted to you and to me. Jesus is that young man who neglected his car when he fell head over heels in love with this girl named the church. This is what happens when Jesus comes crashing into your life. It shapes a new family, a new family of love. Taylor had gotten hurt by his own community, and he, he left his church, and he wasn't going to talk to anybody, and people figured he'd never be back. I've shared this story before because it's such an incredible picture of what the Lord dreams of, I think, for his church. Finally, when he wouldn't, he was just ghosting everybody, and they loved Taylor and, uh, and had, were really grieved that he had been hurt. And so finally, some of the men of the church took it upon themselves to reach out to him, and after some discussion with the other guys at church, they came up with a plan. Uh, this is the one where they decided to camp out in his own yard um, until he came out. It was 150 people in Taylor's yard, so they set up rotating shifts, and they said they wouldn't leave until he came out. They had electric lines running from neighboring houses, powering televisions. They had furniture in the front yard. They had 20 smokers and grills working up barbecue. They were in it for the long haul. They even had big signs all over the place saying, Taylor, come out. We love you. Taylor, we know you're in there. Taylor didn't appreciate it. He called the cops every day. As a matter of fact, the police showed up twice a day for almost a week, 
and every time they came, Taylor would come to the door to explain to the police officer the situation, and every time the men camping in his yard seeing him would explode with cheers until Taylor finished his chat with the police and went back inside and closed the door. But on the sixth day, on the sixth day, when Taylor opened the door for the police and the men exploded with cheers, Taylor finally cracked. He broke down. He started weeping, tears streaming down his, his face, his, his, his chest heaving. He sputtered about how sorry he was. And then he came out from his porch and greeted the men who had camped in his yard for a week, refusing to go away because they were family. He belonged, and they needed to be together, devoted to the fellowship. They were the only people in the world who, have gotten, who could have gotten away with that. The only people in the world where he probably told the police officer not to start arresting people. The only people through whom that message could get through to Taylor because this was family. It was koinonia. And they were devoted and loyal to the body of Jesus as this new community of grace. Let's pray.